In 2007, Simon Winchester appeared on this program to discuss his book on the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, A Crack in the Edge of the World. Simon, how are you doing? I'm doing extremely well, rather weary at the <laughs> middle point. I lived in San Francisco at the time, and I had read quite a bit of local history. So I began to argue with him about the details. I mean, who was this distinguished Englishman to come into my city and quibble with the death toll of one of our most significant historical episodes? Well, I soon found myself dissed on my home turf. These sort of minute pinpricks may fascinate the people of San Francisco. They don't fascinate or even interest me in the slightest. It's just not what the book is about. But certainly in terms of the, of the greater sort of scope, I mean, you know... It has no relevance at all to the great scope, whether it was 700 people died, 500 people, 5,000 people died. History for me has always been about being as inclusive and as accurate as possible. This is why we read Edward Gibbon or Arnold Toynbee today. I mean, what better way is there to get into the larger scope of a moment than familiarizing yourself with as many pedantic details as possible? Well, Simon Winchester didn't agree with this at all. And whether or not the casualty figures were 1,000 or 5,000 is more or less irrelevant. It was the aftermath, the impact on human society generally that is important. So in covering any sort of moment in history, it's not necessarily the fatality. You don't cover moments in history. Journalists cover moments. Historians look back on them with perspective and have, I think, a wider view which does not encompass the tiny details of whether there was a deaf fireman shot it's of no consequence whatsoever. Yet it's these bold and peremptory declarations that have made Simon Winchester's work stand out. I mean, he may be decisive, he may be tendentious at times, but what good historian isn't? Fatality. You don't cover moments in history. Journalists cover moments. Winchester has a new book, The Men Who United the States, that shifts his focus to the broader canvas of America. Now, this volume chronicles how roads and technology and many other things created the national infrastructure we now take for granted. And when I read this new book, I noticed that Winchester had left out a few figures who were dear to my heart. Now, since Winchester had upped his game from a city to a nation, and had moreover become an American citizen, well, I felt the time had come for a conversational rebatch. My name is Edward Champion, and this is The Bat Segundo Show. What you are about to hear is an affably argumentative and cheerfully diverging chat between two wildly energized men, united by the common belief that history is always worth returning to. Okay, so I am here once again with Simon Winchester, who is most recently the author of The Men Who United the States. Simon, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing extremely well, thank you, but okay. uh, it's lovely to see you again. Yes, but well, I was saying before, that last time we talked, you weren't an American citizen. I wasn't. I think it was in San Francisco, yes, and as I recall, I was enormously hungry and uh, yeah, a little bit bad-tempered, but this morning, oh, no, no, I'm no. very good. You've been extraordinarily charming. Uh, anyway, <laughs> um, so what are your strategies for this book um, involved revisiting many of the locations uh, and taking in the sites as they are today. Uh, you encounter military installations on the Lewis and Clark route. Uh, you, when you visited Diamond Peak in Sweetwater County, Wyoming, the site of the Philip Arnold John Slack diamond hoax of 1872, you express a certain kind of romantic disappointment that there isn't a diamond for you to pick up and pluck. <laughs> um, and there's also, of course, your journey by car over Donner Pass, kind of getting a sense of what it was because you were traveling through a blizzard. So my question, first and foremost, is what advantages are there in visiting a place today 
when there is often no trace whatsoever of the original geography. Was this a kind of peculiar criteria you applied in selecting the locations you decided to write about for this book, or what, what happened here? I don't think there were criteria. I mean, I in ter- in, let's go through them one by one. I was following the Lewis and Clark Trail. Yes. And the most, they started, as you probably remember, in St. Charles, just north of um, St. Louis. And you turn left, you turn westwards and go up to the Missouri. And there isn't an awful lot that's very interesting until you come to this funny place called Knob Nosta, which has to be one of the more peculiar town names in in, in America. And I remembered when I got there and read Lewis's um, account of being there and finding some sort of snake that gobbles like a turkey or a turkey that makes noise like it a gobbles snake. Gobbles knobs. Well, yes. we're getting naughty very quickly. Very quickly. We, we <laughs> Stop this. Um, and I remembered that years before, when I wrote an extremely unsuccessful book about the Midwest, that I had been to Nobnosta because it's the site of this enormous Air Force base. Yeah. So I wanted to go and see how the Air Force base had changed in the 30, 40 years since I'd last been there. And of course, it has changed in a very important and significant way. The diamond field in Wyoming, well, I this all relates to the career of an extraordinary geologist called Clarence King, who happens to be a great hero of mine and the first ever director of the United States Geological Survey. He made his name by uncovering a fraud by the people you mentioned, um, which cheated a lot of wealthy San Franciscans out of a great proportion of their fortune by claiming to have found a a field full of diamonds. They had, of course, salted the diamonds there. They'd bought them cheaply in London and then sort of put them in anthills. And and so I went down to Diamond Peak, which is an extremely lonely place. And I'm walking along and thinking, wouldn't it be nice if I could just uncover a diamond or an emerald or a sapphire? But no, there's there's nothing left. It's were there all, any anthills at all? There were lots and lots of anthills. Oh, oh yes, you didn't mention that in the book. Well, there were. I mean, I, come on, you got to be grateful <clears throat> for second place, right? <laughs> Indeed, yes, quite. But I, from the book, Diamond Peak was there, just as described, but it started to snow. It started yeah. to get very cold and very windy, and we were a long way from anywhere, and it was starting also to get dark. So we thought, well, there are no diamonds, so... Screw it, I'm going home. So sorry if I didn't mention the anthills. Yeah. And the final I, thing. I was in suspense. Yeah, know, I'm sure you were. You, yes, you're we, disappointed we, me I'm on that so part. I'm so sorry, yeah. I beg your pardon. And then Donna Pass, well, that was um, some while ago when I, not on doing specific research for this book, but I had bought a, a tract of land in, um, which I've since Montana. sold foolishly, yes, um, in, on Route 93 in western Montana. And I was hightailing it back to. Um, San Francisco because I had to catch a plane back to Hong Kong where I was yeah. living at the time and so I was going fast on Route uh, 80 west and um, all the radio stations were saying that the Donner Pass is dry and clear to use the expression but it clearly wasn't and because as I started leaving from Reno and going up the hills it started to rain and then there were flashing lights on the side of the road saying Donner Pass chains required and then I got up to where the rain turned to sleet and then to drive, then to snow, then to driving snow, and then there was a highway patrol uh, barrier saying only chains required. And of course, inevitably, this being America, there were a couple of entrepreneurial chaps by the side of the road. Who yes. Said, oh, you want chains? We give you chains or sell you chains. No doubt, you were Huey Lewis's mark. Huey Lewis was next in the piece of land in Montana that yeah, I bought. I, 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 I was, he was my I next was door stunned. neighbor. Yeah. Huey Lewis he in the prob- news. I, I was wondering if he had led you astray. Now that I have the timeline absolute here. <laughs> <laughs> no, but what did happen, which I didn't put in the book, was that, um, so I 
paid my $75. I had the chains put on. I crossed the Donner Pass. It's fairly dramatic as, as a yeah. horrible snowstorm, but the point of my telling the story is that the Union Pacific trains were roaring through at the same yeah. time with no problem caused by the snow, illustrating that that was indeed the logical place for the Union Pacific route to go. But then I got over the summit finally, about two in the morning, started going down the other side towards uh, Sacramento. The snow turned to sleet, yes. turned to rain. I unbolted my chains, put them in the trunk of the car. Note I say trunk now, not boot, because I'm an American. Good on you. Thank you. Drove over the Bay Bridge, ultimately to the hotel I stay in, which is a very nice hotel. I've always stayed because I'm from Hong Kong, the Mandarin Oriental, yes. Sunsum in California. The chap at the door says, oh, hello, morning, Mr. Winchester. We've been there for so long. Do you want these chains? And I said, no, 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 just put them aside. So he took the chains out and labeled them every time that I've stayed in the Mandarin in the 20 years or 15 years since that moment, always on my bed are Mr. Winchester's chains. Because if I get up to something <laughs> really? unspeakable in my room involving chains. Wow. Wow. It could have all sorts of... Boy, this Indeed. This, is, this has had all sorts of imp implications. <laughs> um, this kind of strays, though, from my question about uh, using the actual physical presence of Simon Winchester at these locations as a sort of uh, way of writing about them. But it seems to me that you are almost atoning for past peregrination for mistakes in previous books. Is that safe to say? Or um, Well... I did, yes, one particular book. Okay, all right. So nice of you to mention it. Yes, thank you. But uh, I am perfectly happy to admit it that this book, The Men Who United the States, is my second attempt to write about the United States okay. in, in book form. The first was in 1976 when I was based in, in America, in Washington, for The Guardian, and had this, what I now realize to have been somewhat naive belief, that the essence of America, the quiddity, if you like, of the country, could be found not in the effete East or the decadent West, but in the imperturbable, solid, rock-ribbed heart of the country, the Midwest. So I took six months' leave. and I Thank you for not using the term flyover states. <laughs> I certainly would never dream. I yeah. did once, actually, so I've got to confess that in case okay. some you, listeners... Well, you're, you've really become a great American. Well, you know, a very, very noble one, too. I, yeah. I would not, and also, I happen <laughs> to like the Midwest. Yeah. So um, I rented... Oh, no, I didn't rent a car. I drove my Volvo, I remember, and spent six months driving on I-35, which goes from International Falls, Minnesota, snaggles down through Minnesota, Iowa, bit of Missouri, where the Air Force Base was, uh, Kansas, Oklahoma, down through Texas, and finally ends in Laredo. So up and down and up and down and wrote this book, which came out, the timing was, it was to come out in bicentennial year, 1976. And I mean, to be fair to the book, it, which was called American Heartbeat, it was um, creditably reviewed. I mean, people were very generous, but not the people that buy books. They were not generous at all. And when the royalty statement came in 77, or at least... I couldn't dignify it with the word royalty. <laughs> it showed that it had sold 12 copies. So it was not a success. Really? It was a dismal, dismal commercial failure. Wow. So in a way, you're right to use the word atonement. I mean, the this new book is, let us say, learning from the lessons of that failure. Wow. The one thing I de determined to do was to write a book that was in no way similar to the book because <laughs> I had written in 76. Wow, that's, that's incredible. Uh, well, I mentioned the Diamond Hoax of 1872, but this is by no means the only fraud that you dig up 
in this book. There's Samuel Adams, no relation to the beer, no relation to John Adams' second cousin. Uh, he came close to milking $20,000 from Congress uh, for an expedition he claimed he made in Colorado. You have William Gilpin, who claimed that two billion people could be accommodated in the Western territories. Two billion. Please note that. Yes, not million, billion, but billion. Please. Yes, exactly. The Folly of New Harmony with David Dale Owens. Is it safe to say that many of these efforts to unite America required a crazed belief culture or possibly a set of existential blinders with which to achieve ambition? Well, I, I have to hold you there to your reference to David Dale Owen and to New Harmony. I actually think, think New Harmony was a story very creditable in American history. I mean, just very briefly, this is a little town at the confluence of the Wabash and the Ohio Rivers that initially was a utopian settlement built by a group of, of Swabians, Germans, who were being persecuted back home, very similar to the you know, Pilgrim Fathers and all that. They prospered. They sold this little community to the next sort of utopian who came along the line, yeah. who was a man called William Owen. And he, um, or Robert Owen, rather, and he built a community there or intended to build a community of fiercely intelligent intellectuals who would use it as a base for proselytizing intelligence, for teaching. And he lured a number of Philadelphia intellectuals, um, most notably a man called William McClure, who, yes. who drew the first ever geological map of this country in 1809, I think it was. And they all came down from Philadelphia by way of Pittsburgh on a boat, which was called the Boatload of Knowledge, and joined Robert Owen and set up this little settlement. Now, it is true to say that the settlement, like so many utopian settlements, founded because of schismatic arguments. You know, I think there were ten subcults within about a year. What amazes me is one could get on the boatload of knowledge. I mean, that name should have been the big tip-off. Uh, you, you would have thought so, the boat note of extreme pretension, I think. <laughs> but, but nonetheless, David Dale Owen, who was the son of Robert Owen and who was taught geology by this man McClure, went on to become a real evangelist for early geology. And I know geology in this country is ill-regarded. I try and do my best to get people to say it is a great deal more than rocks for jocks. It is. It quite literally underlies everything, everything we can see in this room today. Your yeah. Metal fuel tape recorder, the television, the paper, the paint, the wood, everything comes from the earth as a result of geology. Um, he, David Dale Owen, essentially started the geological surveys or, or triggered them in some way of Massachusetts, Connecticut, uh, New York, Illinois, Wisconsin, Minnesota. So the mapping and the discovering of the mineral wealth of these states can all be put down to the efforts in New Harmony. So I would completely repudiate your idea that in any way that's a uh, a scam. It was. It, it failed. Maybe a belief it, scam. I thought. Yes, a belief scam. I, I couldn't agree with you more. But in terms of its legacy, it's a very important place, and it is a shame. And I'm going to sound rather sort of um, not belligerent here, but I just think it is a shame that more people don't know of New Harmony, and it it should be a shrine to the early sort of phenomenon of learning in this country. It's a very important place. It's interesting that you're more pro-New Harmony and not so much paradise in this book. Uh, but that's interesting. Yes. Uh, well, uh, see, since you had mentioned geology, and as an American, I am, well, as a fellow American, I am also, uh, geology is not exactly one of my best spots, but I do want to actually discuss the Eastern American fall line and the Hudson-Mohawk Gap. Uh, much of American settlement owes its existence to these two geographical realities. Uh, explorers 
fell into this natural expansionist rhythm uh, when pushing against this. But I'm wondering, to what degree were the explorers aware that they were kind of fulfilling almost a geopolitical destiny here? I can safely say that none of them imagined. It is conceivable that in the construction of the Erie Canal, there was a thought given to the geopolitical consequences. But let me just explain. All the people that you've talked about or alluded to journeyed into the interior of America from the eastern settlements by river. And they all, as you said, encountered after 50, 60, 90 miles of paddling. Suddenly the waters got rougher. There were waterfalls. There were rapids. Their progress was blocked. So they had to stay there. They have a settlement from which they would portage. And those settlements eventually became cities. Richmond, Fredericksburg, Washington, D.C., Albany. Then to circumvent those rapids and to allow those communities to trade with the interior beyond the Appalachians the settlers had to build primitive canals. So they learned how to build canals. They then, once they realized the economic importance of canals, once they had learned the technology of constructing them, then they started this mania of building them all over the country to connect places where there were minerals or work or whatever with the nearest ports. And the, the Middlesex Canal in southern New Hampshire led to the creation or the expansion of Boston. But the important one, and this is where your geopolitical question I think comes to the fore, was the one that linked Buffalo to Albany through the Hudson Mohawk Gap, which all of us at school in England, when we were 11 years old, had to know the significance of the Hudson Mohawk Gap in world history. Yes. Because once that gap was filled with a canal, and once trade goods could be brought theoretically from Lake Superior, Hudson, Huron, Michigan, to the port at Buffalo, taken down the Erie Canal, turn right and go down to New York City. This allowed New York to prosper in the way that no other American city did at the time and to become a world port. The man who had the idea for the Erie Canal, which is the name of the canal between Buffalo and Albany, um, was a man called Jesse Hawley. And Jesse Hawley was a highly intelligent farmer in Canandaigua or Canandaigua, New York, who could not get his wheat down to the bakers in New York because the little canal that existed in the Mohawk Gap charged him extortionate rates that it actually drove him bankrupt. Yes. Drove him to debtor's prison. He sat in a debtor's prison for many months and while there studied European canals because he said what we really need is something that isn't extortionately run, which is a canal between Buffalo and Albany. So he wrote for the local newspaper called the Genesee Messenger from his cell in the bankruptcy prison Um, debtor's prison, under the pseudonym Hercules, 14 extremely well-argued essays saying that if you, the state of New York, build this mighty canal, not only will you give New York City prosperity, but you will change America's standing in the world. These essays were read by the then governor of New York State, uh, Clinton, Governor Clinton, and he said, this man, Hercules, whoever he is, he had no idea he was in a debtor's prison, is right. And he got the money through the legislature and the Erie Canal was built. And the first person to attend the ceremony of the wedding of the waters where Great Lakes water was tipped into the Atlantic Ocean at the Verrazano Narrows where the bridge is there, the first person to pour the first water was Jesse Hawley, now free from the debtor's prison, who had had this brilliant idea. So I'm certain that he, and probably he alone, 
had an idea of the geopolitical importance of the canal. Got it. Well, while we're on the subject of canals, I have to bring up the Chicago Sanitary Canal, Chicago Sanitary and Ship Canal, to be quite precise. This was an engineering effort in the late 19th century to, quite frankly, rid the rapidly growing second city of its escalating shit. Now, um, 99% Invisible, this wonderful radio program, happened to actually do this wonderful show on the canal back in August. And host Roman Mars, he pointed out how Ellis Chessborough, this Boston engineer that is now forgotten to history, he was responsible for this canal, and he had the audacity to jack up the street level in Chicago up 10 feet. It took 20 years. It was amazing. Uh, but you didn't mention Chessborough at all. And I'm wondering about this. Um, you know, you claimed that this guy, Isham Randolph, was the guy who came up with the Chicago Sanitary Canal. So why didn't you include Chessborough? And I'm wondering what research you relied on for the Chicago Sanitary Canal. Well, I mean, that, that, that is a good question. Principally, uh, and I should, the editing process of this book, and I'm not blaming anything on the editor at all. Yeah. When I turned in the manuscript, which was for 150,000 words, that was the contract, it was 195,000 because I had found so many ancillary personnel of yes. whom Chessborough was clearly one. He didn't have the idea for the canal. Isham Randolph was the central figure in the building of this canal. Chesper did, yes, that's why when you go down Wacker Drive and yes. all the underneath, that's all part of Chesper's achievements, which are laudable. But quite reasonably, I think we had to strip down. I remember I was in Bangkok in Thailand, and my editor said, look, Simon, this is wonderful. It's full of wonderful stuff, but we've got to eliminate some people some ideas. And so, the, <laughs> so we've got to assassinate a few. We, we do. And, and, and I make wow. I, no apologies for it. You, The book has got to be a manageable length. And yeah. so you, I dare say, will come up with other people who you can say in an accusatory way, why did you leave him out? Well, I'll say, I'm sorry, life needs to be edited. And so Isham Randolph, to me, is the important character. The other one, not so. Well, what's, what 99% Visible pointed out was that Chesborough didn't even have a Wikipedia entry and how he was actually just completely cut out from the great story of the Chicago Sanitary Canal. And I'm wondering, I mean, you know, the sense I got, at least from that segment and from a few other things I read, was that actually Chesborough was the real deal. And you say he's not. I'm, I'm wondering what books and what scholarships say that Randolph is the guy rather than Chesborough. Well, the history of the Chicago Canal by a lady... I think last name is Kelly, but I haven't got the bi bibliography in front of me at the moment. And um, my friend and my the husband of my agent, um, who's written a book called The Third Coast about the development of modern Chicago, the history of the Armour Meat Company, Sinclair Lewis's uh, book on Chicago, which is, I'm sure you'll remember, yeah, the title of The Jungle. All of these taken together helped me in this early, late 19th century, early 20th century construction of Chicago. And if they don't mention Chesborough, then I don't mention Chesborough. Even though the newspapers of the time mentioned Chesborough. I am not going to sit here and justify every omission in this book. All right. There are bound to be some people who are going to fall by the wayside. It's like being cut and ending up on the cutting room floor. I'm in no way defensive about it. I'm simply saying that in my view... Isham Randolph was the more important figure. Okay. Well, I, I was curious how you came to that view. But uh, <laughs> uh, surveying and mapping the territory were essential elements of uniting the states. Uh, you write about the Warren map of 1858, which was the definitive map for the Western United States for quite some time. You also mentioned Roosevelt's slicing of the state with a cavalier crayon, a early salvo in the war for an interstate highway system. Life, and to a larger degree, exploration is about, uh, well, 
what happens when you make other plans? So to what degree would you say that unfulfilled or distorted senses of following what was on these maps gave way to the notion of uniting the states? I mean, was it, I mean, you, you couldn't always follow the schematic. So I'm wondering how much of the uniting came from just wavering off the course, so to speak. That's that's an interesting question, which I hadn't really considered. I mean, I the Governor Warren's map is, I mean, today rather primitive, but it was the first properly accurate map of the American, well, moderately accurate map of the of, of the mid of the West of the United States. I mean, I'm not entirely sure what what you're getting at here. Words like schematic always um, seem to me to be jargon. What exactly do you mean? What I mean to say is is how much of the uniting came from attempts to follow the map instead but instead, most instead of them of, were attempts instead, to create the map attempts to create the map but also the map sort of fulfilled a vision like Roosevelt's crayon uh, based map fulfilled a vision and yet it ended up being a little bit different from that so how much of the u- uniting of the states came from wavering off of the map or or wavering off of the initial plan oh a great deal i mean if you're thinking of the of the interstate highway system Hugely so. I mean, that map, when he took Thomas MacDonald, chief of the Bureau of Roads, into the the library and and the Oval Office and unrolled this great map and drew these lines with crayon, I said, said, Mr. MacDonald, I need a road system that no one was expecting that would follow anywhere near that basic basic idea. But on the other hand, it did. We've got 90 in the north and 10 in the south, the interstate numbers, and 5 in the west and 95 in the east. It broadly uh, followed Roosevelt's great idea, but it took them to produce what was called the Yellow Book, which was the definitive and thought-out map of where these interstate routes would go. That took them another twenty years. I mean, it was uh, they wavered hugely from the original plan, but the bold plan of FDRs was essentially adhered to. And of course, I want to at this stage, if you'll allow me, the, the time correct one misconception about the interstate system. Sure. It is called, as you well know, if you drive on to certainly any of its beginnings, although I remember Route 10 used to be the Christopher Columbus transcontinental road system, but it's now been generally renamed as the Eisenhower interstate system of, of highways. It is believed commonly that it's the Eisenhower system because when Eisenhower is in Europe, after the end of World War II, he saw the German autobahns and said, we need a system of roads like that. It's in fact not true. That Eisenhower's idea was born at the end of World War I, when he was a young major. And the generals at the National War College, now that World War I was over and Japan was becoming something of a rising power in the East, having defeated Russia for a start, that a European power had been defeated by a, a Japan that... 50 years before was run by the shogunate. Um, America was sort of beginning, or at least the generals, the more prescient generals, were beginning to wonder whether the Japanese would start looking hungrily at the west coast of the United States. So they thought, how quickly can we get our troops from the big bases in the east across to the west by road? So they decided to test it. And in August 1919, they assembled a convoy three miles long, of tanks and armoured cars and hospital wagons and jeeps and all this sort of thing, assembled at the South Lawn of the White House. They appointed the young Major Eisenhower, who'd acquitted himself very well in the First World War, as an observer, and off they trundled westwards 
with a view to getting to San Francisco, Lincoln Park, as quickly as they could. Yes. But west of Omaha, there were no roads, and the whole expedition founded in a series of disasters. I mean, not lethal disasters, but inconvenient disasters. Tanks got bogged down, bridges were broken, trucks crashed into dishes, ditches. And um, Eisenhower recorded it all faithfully. They took 58 days to cross the country at an average speed of a little under six miles an hour. Had the Japanese invaded, they would have taken California, yes. Arizona, New Mexico, probably even nibbled away at Texas. Um, and this convinced the generals, but most importantly, it convinced the young Eisenhower that if that America needed a really good road system. And Eisenhower said, there was a note in the diary, that if he was ever in a position where he could do anything about it, he would see to it that the road system was improved. Well, it's also, it's also worth pointing out that in the early days of this country, before automobiles, it was a similar impulse. You needed to actually move military units, and this is what started uh, well-paved roads in the early colonial days. Indeed, and yeah. I mean, the, although the maps in this country are all, the official maps are all made by the U.S. Geological Survey. In Britain, it's called the Ordnance Survey, yeah. because our maps, which are every bit as good, in fact, I'd say rather better than the American maps, um, I shouldn't say our, because I'm now one of you, but I mean, yeah, you're, my you're, former you're country's maps. competition with yourself. Indeed, now, with yeah. myself, it's sort of schizophrenia. Um, the Ordnance Survey is where soldiers plant guns. It's where the masters of the Ordnance found the hills of a certain height that would command a useful field of fire. So you're absolutely right. From the early roads to the early maps, military needs were paramount. Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about rural electrification. Um, in uh, Robert Caro's wonderful series of Johnson books, that, of course, is one of the big things that gets Johnson on the map in his early days in Texas, rural electrification. You point out that the pitiless arithmetic of capitalism is one of the culprits behind the delay for getting power into smaller places, into farms, uh, because municipal cities and, and well, of course, metropolises, 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 thank you. It, we, it's so early in the morning. Um, they were able to actually get much of this. The Great Depression's devastation, followed by the WPA program, actually solved the problem of rural electrification. I, this leads me to ask, at what point in American history would you say that uniting the states became reliant uh, exclusively on greed and largely dependent on the whims of national economic health to atone for the discrepancies like this. I mean, the electrical situation is a classic example of what yeah. you've just said. I mean, the big electrical companies were essentially a private fiefdom of an Englishman, oddly enough, called Samuel Insull, right. who many have said, I think Orson Welles actually said, was the real model in Citizen Kane, yes. and, and not the newspaper barony we believe it to be. Um, anyway, Insul... Which shall not be named. Which shall not be named. Um, <laughs> you, had, you had a bad run with Hearst, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, not particularly. Um, what Insul and his power companies did, as you've sort of alluded to, is provided uh, electricity, AC electricity, because Westinghouse won the famous or infamous Battle of the Currents over Edison, um, that AC electricity should be transmitted to the cities and the suburbs. But it was simply not profitable to roll out the cables to, and the poles to the farms. 800,000 farms in America in the 1930s were unconnected. And there's a sort of lyrical piece that I quote in the book of how miserable it was for the farms that were hugely busy because of the population that was growing so rapidly and needed to be fed, you know, beef or corn or barley or whatever. If they had no electricity to do it, then they were working themselves to the bone. It was a miserable, miserable existence, particularly in winter. 
So one of the many, many things that uh, Roosevelt did when the New Deal began was to see that the farmers got a New Deal as well and that they could and sh or should and then could have access to, to electricity. And the way they did it was that they suggested to the farmers that for a modest sum, and it was heavily subsidised, of course, they should join co-ops. The co-ops would then buy the electricity from the greedy cavalier electricity barons and bring that electricity by wire on poles to these rural communities. And what struck me as amusing, and some would say an irony, is that the first community in America to receive the benefits of big, big government, courtesy of FDR and the REA, the Rural Electrification Administration, was a town, a series of towns in western Ohio, near Miami, Ohio, which is the 8th Congressional District of Ohio, which is the Congressional District now represented in Congress by no less than John Boehner. So the archetype of anti-big government presides over a rural constituency that benefited hugely from the biggest big government America has ever known. Yeah. Well, I also um, want to uh, talk about the title of your book. I mean, The Men. I, I'm sure other people are probably going to bring this up to you, but I must be among the first, I hope. Uh, you bring up, you know, Sacagawea. Sacagawea, thank you. Uh, quite early in the book, as well as your considerable affinity for Donna Reed. Uh, but to paraphrase Abigail Adams's famous letter to her husband, I'm wondering why you didn't always remember the ladies. I mean, you have Maria W. Sturt. She's the first woman of color to speak out against slavery. She united the states by inspiring Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth. You have Jane Adams. You have Harriet Beecher Stowe. I could go on. I could get geeky and mention, you know, Ellen Sallow Richards, the first water quality studies in Massachusetts in 1870, where you live, by the way. Um, Cal Rogers, you prioritize over Amelia Earhart, even though Amelia Earhart, aside from being the first woman to fly transcontinentally, was the first person ever to fly from Honolulu to Oakland. So my question, sir, is why the mams are not so much in this book. And you are among the first, but the very first, I always think it's an instructive thing, is to go to Amazon.com and look at people that have given you a one-star review. That ah. really brings you down to earth, which I think all of us should from time to time. Um, this was the only, thus far, I'm sure there'll be more, one-star review was from a woman who simply said, I am unashamedly a militant feminist, and I didn't even bother to open the book, because I think it is disgraceful that you have simply chosen to ignore um, so many women who I think, she thinks, helped unite the states. And I would simply counter by saying that in the same way dealing with the chap I left out in this, this uh, the earlier story, that, um, that the water purity studies do not equate, even if they're done by a lady, with the majesty of the ideas that I describe in the book. And this is a book about big ideas, and nearly all the big ideas, nearly all, and I can see you ready to jump well, in here. slavery is a pretty big idea. Simon. Yes, I know. Well, a, a civil war was fought over that issue, and most of the proponents of it were men, were they not? Yes, but Harry Beecher Stowe, I mean, come on, that book sold a million you know, every year. I mean, that book was instrumental in changing people's minds, in providing a great dialogue about slavery. You may, you, I'm sure you're right, but I mean, this is not a book about changing people's minds. This is a book about, as I said, I'm sure you read the book closely, you yeah. seem to have done. At the very beginning, it's about the physical uniting 
of America. It's not, I could have written about the English language. And I'm sure there are professors up and down the country, many of whom are women, I dare say, who would argue in favor of German having been the national language of this country or the English that we have ultimately got. I'm sure many women have made incredibly eloquent speeches about the need for democracy and human rights. But this is not a book so much about the the ideas that knitted the states together as the physical links. And the physical links are the ones that I've written about. Once again, I'm not, uh, I, we've talked before, and, and you're, you're good at pu putting people on the back foot. I'm not going to defend the decision I made to include the people I made, nor to exclude the people I left out. But when you're talking about gender in the 21st century, I mean, that's a... I'm, but I, I, I'm not talking about gender in the 21st century. I'm talking about the men who united the states. This is not a book about gender equality. This is not a book about Harriet Beecher Stowe or the books that united the states. I mean, there are thousands of books that uh, that knitted together. I mean, for, okay, well, Donna what, what, Reed we're talking about. You mentioned Donna Reed. Yeah. I dare say the watching Donna Reed, uh, watching the Donna Reed show on television, hugely important in social uniting, watching her in It's a Wonderful Life. All America wept and cried with Mrs. George Bailey. But these are not the physical links that I'm writing about. I'm writing about the people that invented the television over which she was transmitted. So give me a break. I, I'm happy. I'll tell you what. I will give you a break if yes. you can do this. All right. Can you decide a couple of women who actually united the states who you wanted to include? I mean, no, what, I can't. You, you can't. Apart from Sacagawea. Weir. Really? Yes. Did you? What kind of efforts did you make to to look for them? Out of curiosity. Oh, enormous efforts. Although I have to say, yeah. that had there been a substantial number. The title of this book would have to have been The People That United the States, and that would not be an, been as beguiling a title. So there was, I know, and I'm happy to acknowledge it, there was a slight fondness for a title, which made me think, I'm, not that I'm not going to look too hard, but I am happy that most of the people that I turned up who did the, the true physical uniting of the country, I was happy to find that there were... They were mostly men, which meant I could preserve that title. But it was an honest search, and none of the people that you have mentioned I would have included. Huh. Well, that's a very uh, uh, brave position to take in an age of Jezebel, I have to say. <laughs> uh, we'll see what they have to say well, about I have this. no doubt at all what Jezebel will say about this book. <laughs> uh, but thus far, and it's only a week or ten days since publication, um, I've explained the position to the satisfaction of, uh, at least I believe, to the satisfaction of the ladies that have have listened to me. Okay. Because it's not a hostile position. It's simply saying the physical uniting of the states was accomplished almost exclusively by men. That is a reality. And well, I challenge you to offer any other I, I, I am I am going to be going to the NYPL, sir. <laughs> um, let's go to John Wesley Powell. I okay. Mean, his status... A man, by the way. A man, yes. We're going back to the men. I'm, I guess I'm a chauvinist, too. Um, but then you wrote the book. Okay. <laughs> His status in the history books fulfills the infamous maxim from the man who shot Liberty Valance. When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. Here was a guy, he claimed to climb Steamboat Rock with one arm, uh, with George Bradley removing his long johns to lift him over the ledge to the top. Except, as you point out, the pal actually climbed a different rock. So this leads me to wonder how much courage and laurels we can truly apply to people like Powell when there's really all this mythology to sift through? I mean, what did you do to um, account for certain kind of American mythology that may have uh, intermingled with fact? Well, I mean, as you've kindly pointed out in this particular case, I've 
sliced through the mythology. He didn't climb Steamboat Rock, he climbed another rock. <coughs> and, and so I dealt with it in that specific case. The overarching truth about John Wesley Powell that he did get from Green River, Wyoming, down to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. He did only have one arm. He did produce a report, which is in the archives of the U.S. Geological Survey. He did create something or did explore something uh, with remarkable courage and tenacity and in supremely uh, detailed exactitude. And we applaud him for that. If he became a little inebriated with the exuberance of his own verbosity or whatever, I can live with that. I'm glad to have corrected that particular case. But uh, And so many of these other figures have become um, caught up in their own myths. And I've tried, perhaps not always succeeding, but in the one example you've given succeeding, to strip away the myth and, and let's see what the reality is. But I think the reality generally is, is pretty remarkable anyway. Yes. Um, I have to also pick a bone with your claim that Theodore Dehon Judah has nowadays all but vanished. As someone who lived in San Francisco for 13 years, I must say, au contraire, sir, the N. Judah line is one of the most prosperous lines, public transportation-wise, in San Francisco. It's up there with the 38 Geary. Uh, I'm wondering about this. I mean, because you you hear the N. Judah, and I heard, first heard about Ted Judah in high school. Uh, of course, I'm a California native as well. But, I, but I'm wondering why you made such a claim. I mean, it seems to me, at least on the West Coast, oh, that well. his, his, uh, his reputation is still uh, quite well and is still held just as much in the acclaim as the Big Four, you know? Well, I, I would challenge that last remark. I mean, the Big Four, there's no restaurant named the Big Five, and Judah no, is not. No. I mean, it is the Big Four, the bankroll, who bankrolled it. But the railway we're talking about. But there is and no Crocker Hopkins. There is a Hopkins Hotel, but there's no Crocker Sanford. They're not named after any of the public transportation lines in San Francisco, so that's something. There's, that is something, and good Lord. I mean, I, he's not known in the East at all. I, I, I mean, we're doing this interview in the East. I dare say if you stepped outside the door of the office we're talking in and asked anybody... Ted Judah! Who's Ted Judah? They would say, I'm yeah. not the foggiest idea who you're talking about. So while I'm delighted that you from California have heard of him, because I think everyone should be. Yeah, I do too. But I also think that uh, that's one of the purposes of this book, is to say America should be very well aware of these heroic chaps. Okay. Well, I also wanted to talk with you about your six-page love letter to NPR that's in the last section. Um, You write that NPR is now an established and essential part of the American broadcast continuum, admired by most who hear it, held in high esteem both within America and beyond. You say that there is an NPR culture, that it is nonpartisan. Yet earlier in the year, NPR committed an egregious act of transphobia by referring to Chelsea Manning as he until public outcry changed the tide. Uh, it has, uh, has actually done several terrible things in relation to Iran, claiming that there was an attempt to actually assassinate the U.S. Saudi ambassador when it was not. This was pointed out by Fair and, and Glenn Greenwald. Um, it could be sufficiently argued, I might say, that the BBC and the CBC may in fact have uh, higher journalistic standards than NPR. So, you know, why praise NPR? Why give it this grand love letter like this? I'm curious. Oh, and I should also add the Gabby Gifford calling her yeah, death. Yeah, when, I, was, I was about to mention that yes. too. Yeah, yeah. So I'm well aware of the, the warts and all. Um, but in the radio landscape that is modern American radio, it is a beacon. There is not much else that's particularly good out in American broadcasting, would you not agree? Or perhaps you could name oh, a program uh, I, yeah, that is as lot, consistent are, and accurate as, as NPR? I would say that, well, Democracy Now! 
Democracy Now! is wonderful and actually exposes all sorts of stories that are not run on NPR. Um, a lo- I mean, This American Life, which you name uh, and you claim is an NPR show, is actually PRI. Distributed yes, by PRI. Yeah, exactly. Broadcast over NPR yeah, member broadcast stations. Broadcast over NPR. So it's kind of a strange stew right now, especially since... Well, you have podcasts, you have uh, NPR-produced programs, you have PIR shows that are distributed on NPR. It's a very strange soup right now. So It I- is, and I mean, my wife is an NPR producer, so I'm Aha. sort of familiarly involved with this. Um, and we argue mightily over the what you mentioned at the beginning of this, whether the ABC, the CBC in Canada, and the BBC are... Well, there's nothing have like higher journalistic standards. Well, there's nothing like BBC assignment on NPR. There's nothing that has that kind of hard journalism. I, but I think, I, quite honestly, I mean, yes, I've argued this mightily. We spend yeah. hours talking about this. Why isn't there? And if you go back to a, a piece I wrote in Harper's Magazine, in, I think 1974, a long time ago, about yeah. I was very hostile to why isn't NPR as good as the BBC, and one of the, I mean, uh, one of the many reasons it wasn't then and perhaps isn't even today has to do largely with money yeah and also has to do and and another thing i mean i don't know if you read this six page piece fully but i i try and see the analyze the job that npr does in unifying the nation because that was the original one of the original ideas of bill seemering who was the architect both of npr yes and of all things considered saying that it should be an elevated conversation with itself, that America should be talking to itself in a, with a level of discourse that was rather better than the garbage that saturated the airwaves generally in the 1960s and 70s in the rest of the American radio spectrum. It is very sad to me that the way that NPR was constructed with these semi-autonomous member stations that talk to their local audiences rather than to national audiences did not allow that kind of broadcasting to occur. I mean, the BBC is a unifying broadcasting uh, network. A person in Shetland and a person in Cornwall can feel at one thanks to the BBC, as can a person in Manitoba feel at one with a person in Nova Scotia. And I'm sure the same is uh, true in Australia and New Zealand. But in America, it's not. Bill Seamering, great hero of mine in the history of radio, wanted all things considered, which was his baby, to have 30% of its input from member stations. Yes. It doesn't. Yes. It doesn't. It didn't. might have done for the first six months, but that idea was ousted, and he was ousted. Yes. He went back to North Dakota, I think. And nowadays, most of American NPR broadcasting originates, most, not all, originates from Washington, and the desks are hugely in control, which in my way of thinking is not a good idea. So NPR has, it's not a love story, it's saying that NPR is better than almost everything else on the spectrum, but it's not perfect. And I want to assure you that bringing up NPR like this as an independent production was hardly a trivial question because in the close of this book, you insist that technical men hidden quietly out of sight in their blue-lit warehouses, surrounded by silent frenzies of blinking server lights, have largely replaced the uniters of the states, who went out there into the territory, who explored it. Uh, and I'm wondering if you feel that the dormant exploratory impulse within America is dead or has been replaced to this notion of essentially nation states, which is what we described the present radio landscape as. I mean, when we align present territory with its past associations, how is this better or worse than, say, aligning 
real territory with virtual territory, which I think is now the present form of unification and may not necessarily always be a good one. Well, I think you raise a, a fascinating uh, new area of study, and it's sort of what, how I end the book almost, although there's an epilogue about something very different. And that's the creation of a small country newspaper, which yes. I did. But that, let's well, set that that's, that's a little nation state, too. We'll, yeah, well, we'll exactly. But let, let's set that aside. To me, ever since this radio engineer or television engineer in West Virginia attempting to get the television signal to hollers that couldn't get broadcast um, stay, uh, coverage, put coaxial cable down, yes. and thereby created cable television. The creation of cable television the creation of the internet, I think began the process of disuniting the national conversation. And we all started having our own little personal nation states, if you like, little areas of interest. The old idea of the family gathered around the radio, listening to the same program and the culture, therefore being consolidated, is gone. It's dead. And what's come in its place, the child of cable TV and the child of the internet to come, is something very different, and I would say the very opposite of what this book is all about, and it's something that I, I am concerned about. I'm not saying worried, because I think there are greater forces at work. But um, what we're talking over now, podcasting, yeah. micro-interests of a little book like this, maybe a big book, maybe. Um, you know, At the same time, there are going to be programs on butterflies or pornography or cheeseburgers, that's not, in my view, a good thing. I'd like everyone, I'd like the water cooler to be re reinvented so we can all gather and take part in a national conversation. I'm wondering, though, if this idea of a community that is bound by nation states, which is the term we're using, is in fact almost going back to the national beginnings, if this is not necessarily a repetition of the last two centuries of history. And this may not necessarily be a bad thing, it's just a kind of evolution. In fact, we may actually get back to what you're describing, what you are worried about. Yes, I mean, maybe it's a cultural rebooting, if you like, yeah. to, to use a, a contemporary term, which you may be right, it may be a, a good thing. Well, I'm going to continue writing. I'll be next book I'm doing is a book about the Pacific Ocean, so I've done the Atlantic, America, and the Pacific and I, this, I'm fascinated with the way America's evolving. I'll finish that book in three years' time. Maybe we'll talk again in three years' time, and we can say how more or less united America is than, than now. Okay. Uh, it may well be that everything's restarting. I think it's a bit fanciful, to be perfectly honest. I would like to think of America as a continuously evolving. After all, the preamble to the Constitution is to create a more perfect union. Yeah. And I think the the increasing perfection of this union is something that we want to to watch its progress. And I'm not sure that you're right to say that we're maybe stopping and starting from the beginning. I don't think that's necessarily going to happen, but it's a very interesting idea. That's a point I'll have to clarify at a future time. Indeed. Simon, you have to jam. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to chat. Thank you very much indeed. All it was right. super. Thank you.